to be an effective advocate and advisor, that requires thought and intention, and it's not automatic. You really have to affirmatively try to access it every day. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 48 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. Today's episode is as good as it gets. Coming up, I'm joined by fellow matrimonial attorney, Carrie Mogerman. This conversation with Carrie is an absolute blast. Carrie is the president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Attorneys and the go-to family law attorney in St. Louis, Missouri. And Carrie's a sought-after expert across the country on family law matters. In this conversation with Carrie, We take a trip down memory lane and look back at Carrie's wonderful career, the highlights, the moments that stay with him forever, and how the practice of family law and the moment he first stepped foot in a courtroom, how it all changed, how the practice evolved until right now, the biggest challenges he faced in his career, and the invaluable lessons that he learned along the way. And as we say hello to fall, my favorite time of the year, and the baseball playoffs are about to get underway. Carrie and I have a little fun, and we talk Yankees and Cardinals. And Dave, let me ask you, because since the Red Sox season has been done since about the fourth week of the baseball season, is this the year the Yankees and Cardinals finally meet in the World Series? I wouldn't bet against it. That guy, Judge, is having uh, kind of having a season. I've heard of him. He's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he. it's... Once in a while, baseball season, there's reason for everyone to pay attention to home run rates or something like this. And even though I'll, I'll never really like him because I'm a Red Sox fan, it's hard It's hard not to like Aaron Judge and everything he's done this season. Dave, you may not like him, but if he's wearing a Red Sox jersey next year, if the Yankees don't sign him, I bet you're going to find a you know a way to like him then. Yeah, we'll, we'll make room for him. <laughs> I think we'll make room for him, yeah. <laughs> Dave, I know you're ready, so let's fire up today's docket. And now. Let's see what's on the docket. A couple of news items for the docket this week, Evan. First one comes to us from Newsweek.com. Item one. Headline reads as follows. Shock as woman uncovers sister-in-law's plot to make her divorce the husband. Heartbroken woman has taken to the internet to ask for advice after finding out her husband's affair, so-called affair, was all a lie. Interesting situation here, Evan. Your thoughts? Dave, I always get asked, what do I love most about being a divorce attorney? And look, my list is about 50 things deep because I absolutely love what I do. And one of those things that I love is every day is different. I wake up, I have my coffee, I head to my office in the heart of lovely Midtown Manhattan, New York, and I think my day is going to go one way. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I know is that I have a potential client sitting across from me telling me about their sister-in-law's plot to make her divorce her husband. Mm. And she only found this out after the divorce was finalized. Ugh. And look, I, when I read this, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And no, I haven't had this exact situation. But you know what? I've had things pretty damn close mm. to this. Mm. And does this article in Newsweek surprise me? It doesn't. And the truth is, not much does at this point in my career. But Dave, the bigger question 
that I have, and I know it's on your mind as well. What kind of twisted sister-in-law is this? I mean, who the hell mm. does this if it's true? And if I understand this right from the article, the sister created like a fake affair right. that her brother was having, mm. then convinced her brother's wife to divorce him over it so she can set her brother up with her friend. Yeah. I mean, who does this? I mean, putting aside, it was probably easier to just go to her brother and say, hey, I think your wife's having an affair. I mean, she had this like mastermind, sick, twisted thing going on to creatively orchestra the demise of her brother's marriage. And for what? Because mm. she thinks her brother would be better off with her friend. Mm. I don't know what it is. Maybe it is the electronic age or the age of all these true crime documentaries or something that prompts people to think they can mastermind some scheme just for the art of it, maybe, or the fun of it. Because, I mean, we've talked on the show before about the Tinder swindler and other scam artists. This one, yeah, I'm with you. I have no idea why you would go to great lengths. And it wasn't even for herself. It's one thing where a person is so blinded <laughs> by, like, their own passion for a person. But this is her wanting to set up her brother with a friend? It must be some kind of friend. She must have owed her money or something. Unreal. I mean, totally nuts. Totally nuts. In addition to needing a new wife, you might need a new sister. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Ugh, what a mess. But we move on. Item two comes to us from the Ironton, I believe that's Ironton, Ohio, Tribune. Item two. This is a write-in letter to a column. It's called Lawyer Mark, and it says, Dear Lawyer Mark, I'm mad. And the reason why the writer is mad is he says the $20 divorce kit that he got wasn't worth the price. Thought this would be a good one for you, Evan, because I think you, you would rather not have people going to a divorce kit rather than perhaps asking your advice. But what do you think? Dave, I mean, look, you know exactly what I think. Look, going to a divorce kit, never a good idea, especially when it costs 20 bucks. I mean, look, my lunch cost more than $20 yesterday. And when people ask me, look, can I represent myself? My answer was always yes. You're entitled to choose to represent yourself, but I would never recommend it. Would you play dentist and pull your own wisdom tooth? Of course not. Nope. Would you perform your own open heart surgery? Hell no. Right. Yet why is it, Dave, that people try to navigate the unchartered, uneasy, the complex and complicated world of family law on their own? I mean, sure, look, cost matters, and I get it. Cost is a real consideration for people going through divorce, which is a very expensive process. But find an attorney that works for you in your price range and who is a good fit, even if it's just a matter of filing documents after you and your spouse have agreed to everything. Find an attorney, find an organization, find a bar association with available free resources to help you. But 20 bucks, sometimes you just get what you pay for. We are up to the portion of the program where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. This week, we look at a letter written in to Cleveland.com, headline reading, My daughter is in the middle of a messy divorce that keeps getting more expensive. That's the topic of this week's Shine On Spotlight. The Shine On Spotlight. Dave, look, divorce is expensive, and the longer it goes, the more expensive it gets. The emotions, the outrageous positions, the wild expectations, the hurt, the anger, the resentment. Add about 50 different adjectives to what I just said, and you have just begun to describe some of the feelings that exist in the divorce process. And sadly, Annie is right. 
People often use the legal process to emotionally and financially wear the other spouse down. And the problem is that the process can take years, right? Years until you're finally divorced. And the emotional toll, the financial toll, the physical toll, getting divorced takes, it's real. And look, Annie gives good advice when she says for the attorney to point all this out to the judge. That's what a good attorney should do. Show the court that one spouse is using the legal process to financially wear down the other spouse. And in New York, and I imagine other states too, judges will consider not only the finances of the parties when awarding another spouse legal fees, but also the behavior and conduct of a party. But let me also say this, although it sounds like this is a long shot in this case and not always possible, settlement can often be the best way to just bring it all to an end. When you give advice to your clients, Evan, are you willing to incorporate that element? In other words, there's the prospects of success or failure that you're going to evaluate as an attorney. But does your advice typically also include, however, this is going to cost you this much, this is going to cost you that much? All the time. Look, at the end of the day, it's a cost-benefit analysis. If it's cost you $50,000, you're going to get 20. Simple math is going to tell you that's a bad idea. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's often hard for people, right? Because people get so embroiled in conflict and it's hard to see the forest through the trees. But if you can slow down, take a step back and realize the benefit to settling the case, not spending the money, not taking certain positions in a year or so, it may not matter all that much. You know what? You're going to save a lot of heartache, a lot of trouble and a hell of a lot of money. Our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast is St. Louis, Missouri's top divorce and family law attorney, Carrie Mogerman. Carrie, the president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Attorneys and a diplomat of the American College of Family Trial Attorneys. Carrie is not only an incredible and highly sought after divorce attorney, but a tremendous person who gives so much back to the profession, his community, the practice of family law, and the next generation of family law attorneys. Carrie, it's great to have you with us on the podcast. How are you? I'm great, Evan, and I appreciate the invitation very much. Carrie, I'm excited to talk with you. I know it's been about seven years or so since we were last together in person at the ABA Trial Advocacy Institute in lovely Boulder, Colorado. I'm looking forward to be back talking with you here on the podcast. And what an incredible experience that trial advocacy program was for me, and you were such a big reason why. Well, thank you. It, it's a great program. And we just, it's just been kind of redone and it's being offered now annually in Kansas City. They just had the, the, uh, the first one of the new program. And I am getting great reviews. I think it was an excellent program. And it, it's fun for the faculty because not only are we helping people learn how to be good advocates, but you know, you shake some of the rust off when you do that every time. And, and you come back yourself feeling like, you know, I, I, I sharpened up. So it's great. That's fantastic. If the program in Kansas City is anything like the one in Colorado, I have no doubt that it's tremendous. And Carrie, let me ask you, how has the culture of the legal community changed since you first started practicing? Well, that's a really good question. And I, I think it's changed in a number of ways. But primarily the speed of communication, the rapidity, you know, with which we all talk to each other, it's just so different now. 
I, I mean, I, I've been practicing 37 years. And, you know, when I started, I think the first firm I was with had a memory typewriter. <laughs> Imagine, you know, fast forwarding from that, you'd get a letter, you'd have mail every day in a folder, and it'd be an inch or two thick. And you'd read it. And a few days later, you might dictate a response, or you'd send it to your client, and you'd wait for your client's response. And then you'd set an appointment to talk about it. Now, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's nuts. You've got, you are communicating by text, by email, the courts are even doing it. So that has changed a lot. And I think to some extent, it's great for efficiency, but to some extent it diminishes the experience of, of, of representation and being an advocate because a lot of what people count on us for, Evan, as you know, is analysis. And sometimes analysis is inefficient. It just is. It requires you to think and ruminate on things. So that has changed a lot. That's one of the things. The other thing, I guess, that has changed a lot is because of this post-COVID era that we're in, we don't see our colleagues anymore in person. We don't, you know, rub up against them at the courthouse on a docket day when you've got, you know, five other matters or you see five adverse lawyers on the other side of cases and you do a little business on each of them while you're over there and you catch up on everything, see how everybody's doing. That's not nearly as common as it used to be. And I I think that kind of detracts from it a little bit. It takes away from the collegiality part of what we do, but that's just progress, I guess. And Carrie, we we share a brain and I've said that before that I miss that part of the practice. I miss seeing my colleagues in the courtroom, in the hallway. I miss getting together with people. And I think that's something that the practice right now is missing. And I think it's helpful on cases. I think it's helpful in terms of the social aspect to see your peers and to see your colleagues. But you're right. In terms of the practice, I mean, two and a half years into it, we're still not back, at least in New York, in person all the way. And I think it's really something that, that is missing amongst, amongst my colleagues. No question. You know, a lot of the shorter appearances, I think it's fine. We can do those by Zoom or whatever video conference we're using, WebEx. But that's about it. The other stuff, I think it's important to be there in person. And there's a give and take that takes place to to a lesser extent on a video conference platform. I think in person, it's just better. Gary, divorce law, by its very nature, it's emotional and it can often be contentious. How have you managed to find integrity and nobility in that area? Well, I think we all strive for it. And I think that it's sometimes hard to to actually perform it, if that's the correct word. But I really think it's important not to assume bad intent on the part of my opponent. You know, there may be a particular reason that something was said or done or communicated that while maybe it's offensive, it may be not as nearly as malicious or malign in its germination and its having been sent to you as you might think. I think that's part of it. Another part of it is just not to, and this is really hard, try not to take things personally. I mean, there's something very personal about the kind of work that we do in this field, and it's hard not to over-identify with your client. I mean, we all identify with our clients to some extent, but it's a little harder when it's a real person with a real problem and it does seem very immediate. And it's hard to have that, for lack of a better term, clinical 
distance that's required, I think, to be an effective advocate and advisor. And it, that requires thought and intention. And it's not automatic. You have to, you really have to affirmatively try to access it every day. And I think, I think with maturation, as people gain experience in the field, those who stay in, they find that they have that ability or they've found it somehow. And I think that's important. Those are two things I can think of that help with that. The, the other think, thing, yeah. Go well, ahead. It, you know, one thing I advise younger lawyers, you know, when you're in chambers with the judge or you're at the bench in front of the judge and there's always a give and take. And it, if I'm with a, with an adversary or an opponent that is particularly difficult or, or is really compromising my ability to maintain that, that clinical distance, I, I say only communicate with the judge, even answer your opponent's questions to the judge. And I find that it really dials down the, it dials down the temperature and it keeps things at a, a good level for communicating respectfully in a dignified way. Carrie, I love that. I love the phrase clinical distance. And towards that end, what advice would you give to an out-of-town lawyer who's coming to St. Louis, Missouri, practicing family law for the first time? To an out-of-town lawyer, I would say, you know, stay home. Don't, don't come here. <laughs> we need to work. No, I, I think, well, you know, um, you always want to know the the parameters and you want to know the, the lay of the land, where you're going. Sure. You want to know about the judge. You want to know about the lawyer that's on the other side. You want to know how they do things there. So I would say, you know, get a referral to someone here who's very well thought of and busy and 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 call them and interview them and find out what you need to know. We are right in the heart of the Midwest. And I think we have a pretty collegial environment. I'm told that there are different places in the country that it's not so collegial. So you might want to see how people behave here and kind of use that as your model if you're from out of town, because you, you certainly don't want to alienate the fact finder and the person who's going to be making the decisions in your case. And you want to be able to have a good working relationship with your opponent. And Carrie, you mentioned having a good working relationship with your opponent. I find that so many clients expect us as matrimonial and divorce and family law attorneys to sort of be just going against in a very adversarial way with the other attorney. But I find it's many times it's the opposite. If you can have a good working relationship with the adversary, with the attorney on the, other, on the other side, it helps immensely to resolve the case, to resolve the issues, as opposed to being in that adversarial role. And look, sometimes you have to take on different roles and responsibilities, but when you have a good working relationship with the attorney on the other side, I think it helps the case. Oh, there's no question. And there's no question that it's in your client's interest if, if the lawyers have a good working relationship. I can understand it's, you know, it's counterintuitive to to a lay person who really learns about the law from television and movies and, and, and reading and, and how, how advocacy takes place. But it's critical because you have to be able to trust your opponent and you, you want to be trustworthy in return. And you, there's so much efficiency you can provide the clients by a good working relationship, so much red tape that you yep. can ignore and agree to work around that, that, that you really can't if you don't have that. 
Carrie, as you look back on your career, tell us about a moment that made you really proud to be a lawyer. Well, I, I, I guess I'm always proud to be a lawyer, Evan. And, and I think the times that I feel best about it are only partly related to client representation. I love to go to a conference and hear a great lawyer give a presentation on a well-researched novel topic and see my colleagues in the audience all, you know, listening and interested in it. And then we might talk about it at the coffee break. It's, it's invigorating to me to be around great lawyers. I, I just, I, anytime I go to a, a good meeting like that, I come home and I, I tell my wife, that was just such a great meeting. And I really feel charged up about what we do. And I guess the most recent thing in terms of what I do day to day, I had an extremely challenging case that I tried about a year ago. And it was a difficult case because it involved the interpretation of a prenuptial agreement and it involved issues of tracing and it involved all the kind of complex forensic components that we see in the, you know, the, the complicated financial cases. And we, we came up with a theory that I thought was, was the correct theory of the case and we stuck with the theory. And there were times throughout the year that it was really, really rough going, but we stuck with the theory and we got a, a great result. It took almost a year to get the result. But when we did, it was the right result. And, and it, you feel good because you developed the theory, you communicated it to the client and got the client's buy-in because you know, they have all kinds of different ways they want to proceed that, that may or may not have anything to do with the, <laughs> the statute or the sure. case or anything else. So you have to get that buy-in. And then when times are tough, it's really hard because they begin to lose faith and they begin to lose confidence a little bit. They need extra support. And that was just the most recent time, I think, where it, it felt like everything happened the way it should have happened in the right way. And, and of course, the client was both relieved and, and happy. And so that's the most recent time I can think of. That's great. I, I love that story. And you mentioned buy-in. How hard is it in your experience, to get that buy-in from a client and really to manage a client's expectations? Because look, so many clients will come in and you know they hear or they have this idea of what and how their case should go and what it, you know, what they're entitled to, what they yeah. should receive, what their friend or what their sure. family member who went through the divorce process, what their divorce was like. How hard is it to get the buy-in and how do you do it? It's, it's not easy, but I'm, I have an embarrassing admission. And this is, this is an empirical observation. When I was, you know, 30 and I had all my hair and it was all brown, it was harder. And <laughs> as, you're, as, as you lose it and as your hair color changes, it's easier. And it real, there is something too the perception of experience that I think that clients pick up. That's part of it. And that's kind of artificial because you don't control that. The part that you control, I think, is to be, well, to, to be able to sit and listen and, and, you know, put your ego aside. And there's a certain arrogance that creeps in for all of us to an extent. You, you see a lot of the same types of problems, you know, being 
described in initial consultations and you talk to a hundred people a year who, and it's very easy to interrupt a potential client with, no, I know I've seen this before. Here's what we have to do. And that makes you feel good, but it doesn't make them feel good because it is still a unique problem that they're experiencing and they're experiencing it for the first time. And until they know you have heard everything about it that troubles them and that they think is significant, it's harder for them to take seriously what, what you said. So you really have to, I think, be open and be patient to let the client talk and let the client tell you what it is that they are concerned about. And, and I think the return for doing that is to have an easier time getting the client's buy-in for an approach that you think is the right approach. Carrie, what's been the biggest challenge that you faced in your career? The biggest challenge is trying to, it's trying to give your family what your family needs while you're trying to do for your clients what your clients need. I don't think it, there's anything unique about it, but this is a very demanding profession that we're in. It, you're, you're thinking about it all the time. And you're, if you're not thinking about what happened today, you're thinking about getting ready for what you need to do tomorrow. And that happens a lot when you're out of the office. And that's the time that your family's supposed to have your undivided attention. And, you know, they get that sometimes, but often that they, they don't. And I think that's the, the biggest challenge in what we do is having a balanced life. And it's, as I told you earlier, 37 years in, I'm still trying to figure it out. And every week is different, but that's, that's been for me, the biggest challenge is trying to, trying to provide, you know, counsel and advocacy and guidance at the level that your client needs and expects. And at the same time, you know, keeping some for yourself and for your family, that's, that's a real challenge. And it drives a lot of people out of our field. Uh, I'm sure you've seen very promising young lawyers hit it hard for maybe eight, 10 years, maybe longer, and then walk away from it because it's just not a field that is necessarily open to a balanced life. You really I've seen it. And, and with technology and cell phones, and you mentioned text messaging earlier, there's this expectation that attorneys respond. I mean, very, very quickly. It's very different, you know, as you talked about the practice and what it was like, you know, you know, before sort of technology and how everything's changed, it's become even harder. It is. My client, my, my partner doesn't agree with me, but I told Jim, I think Amazon prime has almost ruined us. (laughs) We're so used to, you know, two clicks. I mean, literally you click the website, they know what you want. You say, yes, I want more of that. It's coming tomorrow. (laughs) And I 100% agree or this afternoon and we become conditioned to that. And we expect that in, in the law too, from our lawyers and from the court system. And I think that's really, it's hard. It's hard to keep up with that. Carrie, you lecture, you present, you give so much of your time to the community. You're the president of, of the Academy. Why have you devoted so much of your time to teaching young lawyers? Well, thank you. I I enjoy it immensely. I I like teaching and I like speaking. And what I have found is that it helps me. So it's not as altruistic as it may sound. I mean, I don't think I've ever said no to an invitation to speak at a CLE. Even if I didn't know anything about the topic, I agreed to the engagement. And then, you know, you research the topic and you study it. And 
by the time you appear that morning, you're the person in the room who knows most about it. And at the same time, you've just expanded your own knowledge. So that's a big part of it for me. You were talking about the trial advocacy course. Every time I go and every time I'm on the faculty, that's eight days away from the office and from your family. But it's eight days of concentrated work in what we do, how we present ourselves to the court, how we present ourselves to opposing counsel. And you come back, you really feel like you just had a refresher course and you, you, you feel great. You feel strong and confident. You know, there's an erosion in everything that we do, just like anybody else. And I, I don't know what your experience is, Evan. Are you trying as many cases as you used to? I'm still trying cases. I would say it's probably the same is it as about in the, the past, same? about the same. I think many of us are trying fewer. I think the settlement rates are up. I think ADR has helped that. I think that, that COVID has actually helped that because you can't, for a while, you couldn't get in front of a court. And so it pushed us to more mediation and more special masters and more private judges. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point because during COVID in particular, I mean, cases that were being litigated in the courtroom, I mean, the court in New York was shut down, you know, for about six, seven weeks and cases that were already going on for two, three years, some of them are still going on. So people even in the court system were looking for out of court ways to settle their cases, whether it was mediation or arbitration or, you know, collaborative law or just getting in a room, you know, virtual on the screen or in person to try to settle the case. So I'm seeing a greater push to settling cases outside of court. But the cases that are ripe you know, for trial, you give the great example about the prenuptial trial that you were involved in. I've had cases along those lines, but I'm seeing a greater push towards settling outside of the court process, given how backed up the court system is right now. Well, you know, Steve Peskin, the great lawyer in Chicago who has written a number of books for the ABA about advocacy and family law. He wrote the, the family law trial evidence book and a couple of other books. One of his... One of his prefaces, he says, you know, we can try as hard as we can to settle cases and we'll mediate cases and the collaborative practitioners will collaborate, do collaborative law, but there will always be people who require the assistance of the court to resolve a dispute. And so those are the people that we, we still have to be prepared to represent in court, despite it, we may be the most effective negotiators, the most effective mediators, but there are always going to be somebody who needs the assistance of the court to get through it. And when we're not trying cases or we're not appearing regularly, we get rusty, just like anybody else. Just like a ball player gets rusty if they're not on the field and not taking swings in the cage. And so that's another reason that I I just find it so invigorating to go to these programs. Kerry, as you look back on the changes in the family law and the statutes or legislation that has passed while you've been practicing, is there one statute or law that stands out to you as having a a monumental impact on the practice of family law? I can't think of one. The the one that had the greatest impact was enacted in my state before I became a lawyer, and that's our Equitable Distribution Act, which was was originally a model act that was propounded by the Commission on Uniform Laws. And our state, Missouri, is one of the earliest states to adopt it. So we went from a time when people tried divorce cases out of a manila folder and you tried the status of the of, of marriage whether you're married or divorced but if there was property in common there was a separate lawsuit involved for 
for partition and title was everything. And so now, since that act was passed, and I think it's in most states, it recognizes that title is only part of it. It's a partnership. And I think that gave both parties to the marriage great a great interest and skin in the game and right to the joint fruits of their efforts as a couple over the years that they were married. So that was the key change in our field. Now we see these incremental, the evolution of these things, the two key things that I think we keep seeing. We see alimony reform throughout the country. It's always in some legislature in some form, and that's interesting to see. And we're seeing a lot of a lot of interest in a presumptive 50-50 statute for child custody, where we we, we go in, we're out of the chute. 50-50 is the correct uh, division or allocation of parental time, unless you can really show the court there's a serious problem. And that's a hard one to argue against, but I would argue against it. And I mean, we don't have to go into that, but, but those things are constantly, I think, before us in the culture and they're constantly being debated. And we're seeing a lot of that in, in my state and in surrounding states. I suspect you are. I suspect you are, too. I am. And, and Carrie, I do want to ask you because I, I, there is that shift in, in some states and New York is not one of them. I take it Missouri is not either, but but you mentioned that the presumption of 50-50 of equal parent time, that's not something that you would be in favor of. T- tell us why. Well, one thing that troubles me about a number of proposed refinements of our statute is there there is always kind of a an attempt to remove judicial discretion and thought and deliberation that you would enjoy if you're presenting a case to a judge. You, you, the statute sets out these broad parameters and, and, and it lists, you know, eight or 10 things the judge should consider in his or her deliberations on a particular set of facts. But it gives the judge the ability to, to draw inferences from those facts and reach the right conclusion for that case. And so, for instance, using the 50-50 law as a, an example I think it's well intended. I think that there's a thought amongst many people that, you know, both parents should have substantial time. And I I think most statutes say that. But really, when you say 50-50, you are putting the parents' interests first. And, you know, we, we can argue about it. But at the end of the day, that's really what we're doing. And we're saying, if you think that the child's interest outweigh the parents' interest in a 50-50 allocation, then prove it and show it. Whereas I think if we start from the traditional standard of best interests of the child, the ideally the right answer for the right for this child in this family should reveal itself by applying the factors. But when we reduce the work of an experienced judge to checking boxes, which is sort of what that is, I think, I think we diminish their ability to do what's best for the family. And it's sort of counterintuitive, I suppose, because the other place we saw it, I I feel like you're inviting more litigation by saying it's 50-50 unless. Well, if I don't don't think that a precise 50-50 parental allocation of time is in the child's interest, I have to, you know, I have to put on evidence of of this and it's going to be ugly and it's going to be unpleasant for the other party, both parties. It may not be necessary. We saw it 
it happened with our child support chart. We have an income shares model in my state, like in many states, and it worked pretty well. I mean, until the legislature said, we're going to include this visitation or temporary custody credit at the end of the calculation. Well, the comments already gave the court the ability to weigh, you know, whether to vary or deviate from the chart. But what it, what people don't anticipate when they advocate for that credit is it invites disputes and it, it invites arguments over how much time because some people, and you're going to find this hard to believe, not everyone's intentions are honorable. And some people, <laughs> some people want more time, so they pay less child support. Oh, of course, we, we see terrible. it all the time. Yeah. It's just terrible. And, uh, and then going back to what I said earlier, it's hard not to presume ill intent. But those are, those are trends that I think are unfortunate. I know that they're well-intended, but I, I think if you talk to experienced practitioners in the field, Usually they're they're reluctant to go that way because they they think that the factors on best interests are important. Kara, we talked about the pandemic. Give us a word or two to describe what it's been like practicing family law during a time like this. I think it's been exceptionally difficult. And I I, I for a, a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, part of meeting a new client you assess each other. You decide if this is a person you can work with. They decide if you're a person you can work with. It's harder to do on the phone or on Zoom, but you don't want to spread the disease when the pandemic was at its height. And that was hard for people. I think, I, I just think that the burdens of it and living with it have made people less able to, what would you call it? The equanimity factor has really, has really been compromised. Little slights and irritations that we would handle in stride when we weren't also, you know, not being around other people and, 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 and we weren't staying home and all the time, they're harder to deal with. And, and then of course, the, as you know, what different, what, what's different about our cases than a general civil case or even a criminal case is they all deal with an occurrence. It occurred in the past. The facts are always the same. You know, there may be witnesses that emerge from time to time, but the facts are the same. But when you have a case or I have a case, that marriage, that family, it, the marriage is an organism that continues to change and adjust throughout this whole process. And so even though things would seem well in hand, you know, one day you get a call, this happened or that happened or the money disappeared or, you know, and these are urgent problems. And it's, it's, it, it's harder to handle urgent problems uh, when you're like remote and it's hard to, you can't walk over and see the judge's clerk and get a date. You got to hope that the clerk is on, is answering the calls. I mean, it's just, it's been very frustrating, both I think for litigants and their lawyers very much. And I'm sure for the court, there's no question. I mean, they've come out of the high end of this pandemic with huge backlogs and yep. they still have to move through the dockets and get the cases resolved. And I just think it's made it difficult for everybody. Do you see going back to the place, to the time period you mentioned, you know, the docket, you know, in, in York, you know, it would be typical for a judge to have 20, 30 cases on for whether it's the preliminary conference day or motion day. Do you see it a point where judges and the court system goes back to that? 
I have a really hard time imagining that we'll ever get back to that, which is kind of sad. But there are so many efficiencies that have been introduced as a result of the available technology. I just don't think it's going to happen. That's one thing. I think also there's an interest not only on the part of the lawyers, but also on the part of the judges who hear the, the cases. We like to manage our time and we like to manage our schedule. And, you know, nobody wants to, nobody, I, I submit, Evan, that anyone who tells you, I love to go to court and see if I'm getting sent out to trial or not. You know, <laughs> the court goes down 30 cases. It says, okay, you're out, division six, you're out, division five. Yeah. No one likes that. You, you want to be ready for the trial on the day you're supposed to be ready for it and you want to go on that day and those are inefficiencies in the system that i think this i think we traded that one set of inefficiencies possibly for a different set of inefficiencies but it's just it's a it's a public environment and there's nothing efficient about it it just i don't see us going back gary let's have a little bit of fun as we finish up on the podcast has there ever been a fictional lawyer Who's a good role model for real lawyers? Well, certainly. Certainly Atticus Finch is a great role model. Atticus Finch was a, a great advocate, but also a person of principle. And, you know, I think he was a, a, a great role model for lawyers. I think Erin Brockovich, the paralegal, was a great role model for lawyers. She knew every fact about every one of her clients. And those are in fiction, right? And she, I guess that's not a fictional case, but, but I think that they're, they were great role models. There are a lot of very interesting role models in fiction, but they don't always shed a flattering light on what we do. One of my favorites, and I don't know if the, I assume this is fiction, was the great movie Witness for the Prosecution with, you know, the great Charles Lawton. And he he's he's brought a case by a solicitor, a very interesting murder case to defend. He's at the twilight of his career and he's in poor health but it's too challenging for him not to take it. He takes it and he, he puts on a clinic of cross-examination in this movie, which is, I mean, it's, it's just exactly how you do it. And that's a great example. And that's a great role model for lawyers. Gary, let's, let's talk sports. I'm going to put you on the spot. Who is the better Cardinal Stan usual or Albert Pujols? <laughs> that's a dirty trick. Well, they're both, you know, immense, immense talents. And of course, Stan Musial is, has always been the greatest, the greatest of many great Cardinals amongst fans. But Albert has certainly earned his place. And it's really not, honestly, we've always been a great appreciative fan base. And when Albert left to go to the Angels, it really stung. I mean, it really stung. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. it stung. But we still couldn't say anything bad about him. And we still watched him from afar. And when he had a health problem, we felt bad about it. And when he came in interleague play and took his first at bat, I mean, he stood out there for like five minutes, taking the, accepting the adulation of the fans. And now that he's back for his last year in, pra in practice, his last year in practice, his last year in baseball, uh, who I really wouldn't have expected that he would come and that he would be so welcomed and that he would, He's having a great year. Phenomenal year. I think it's a few months shy of 700. And what he's doing, it's, it's, it's been great to watch. Just amazing. Amazing to watch. Kerry, people say that St. Louis is such a great, great baseball town. Tell us why that is. Well, I think it's a great baseball town because it's had the luxury 
of having great baseball many years. I mean, I don't think there's a National League team that has won more World Series or been in more World Series. And so it, you create a natural fan base. If you go back to the days before cable TV, you had radio over the entire Midwest. So you had great Cardinal, Cardinal fans from Northern Texas up into Minnesota and East and West. And I don't know. We just, I suspect that if we had rotten baseball, we'd have rotten baseball, (laughs) but not necessarily anybody's doing in particular, but we've always, we have benefited from great ownership and it's been consistently pretty good to great. And right now I think we have great ownership and many cities have never experienced that and, or, or on a consistent basis. And, you know, when fans know that ownership wants to win, even when ownership, even when we don't win, it's okay. I mean, we're out there swinging and we've had that luxury. And I think that's a big part of it. So going from one great baseball town, St. Louis, to another great baseball town in New York with the Yankees, the Cardinals of the Yankees, they've met five times in the World Series, but not since 1964. Is this the year? Yankees are having a great year. The Cardinals are having a fantastic year. Carrie, is this the year they're destined to meet I would, I would love that so much. I mean, it, it would really be awesome. I feel like, of course, there are a ton of great teams in the American League, but the Yankees are the signature franchise of the AL, and I think a World Series between those two, two teams would be unbelievable. It would be great. And 1964 is a long time ago. It's time. It is time. You know, it has been a great baseball year for both, you know, my New York Yankees, you know, your Cardinals. And look, you know, with, you know, the baseball playoffs in October, right around the corner, we'll see what happens. But it'll There's be fantastic like, to watch. Nothing like fall baseball, is there? Absolutely. There's absolutely nothing. Carrie, I have to tell you, this was an absolute blast. This was incredible. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you for the invitation. It was great to see you again and talk to you again. And, and I, I hope I, I hope I didn't bore you too much. It it sure was interesting for me. That was fantastic, Carrie. Thanks so much. Thank you. Episode 48 of the Shine On Podcast. This was a show. What a conversation with Carrie Mogerman, an incredible matrimonial attorney who continues to devote his time to mentoring young attorneys and giving so much of himself and his time to the practice of family law. I could have taught Cardinal and Yankee baseball for hours. Producer Dave, I hope you didn't feel too left out as the Red Sox (laughs) season has been done for quite some time and the Yankees are headed to the playoffs. Oh, you can't say that enough, can you? Well, no, I can't get enough. You know, anytime (laughs) I'll take an opportunity to do it. But Dave, thank you to you as always. Thank you to all the listeners. You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, YouTube and the great pod 617. Follow the podcast. Send in your comments and questions to Evan at shotanddivorce.com and follow me on social media for the latest content. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.